Time for Swordplay. Alex, the director of an upcoming film about Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, says the greed, power, and the need for fame led to the televangelist's downfall. Nick, I completely disagree. I don't think it was greed, power, and fame that led to his downfall at all. No, oh, well, well, what do you think led to his downfall then? I think it was probably all the stealing and raping. <laughs> Could be that as well. Just to be accurate, you know. Welcome to Swordplay, offering double-edged perspective on Scripture. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood, an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this deluxe edition of Swordplay, 1 John chapter 2. And we have a lot of content to cover, so we might as well jump right into it. Nick, verse 1, why does John call them his little children? That's right. Uh, my take on this is this is a, a term of endearment that John uses for these Christians repeatedly in this epistle. Uh, so that's what I see here, but I, you think there's more than meets the eye, correct? I think so. Upon closer inspection, I notice that sometimes John uses the term little children, uh, as in this verse and many others to come. But we'll see when we get to verses 12 through 13, John also addresses some of them as young men, others as fathers. Uh, still, when we get to verse 18, John addresses them all as children, not little children. I see two possible views when interpreting the audience John has in mind, and both are uh, metaphorical. Either all of these terms are to be taken synonymously, and John has no real distinction to be made, or each of these terms has a target audience in mind among the recipients. And so let's explore the latter option. First, when John uses children without the adjective little, I think we can take that to mean all Christians. This pairs well with John's gospel, specifically the prologue where John tells us, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Second, when John uses little children, I think that perhaps is John emphasizing a point for those who are young in the Christian faith, not necessarily in age, but in learning and in sanctification. Of course, anyone else could benefit from what John says to the little children of the faith, but he has them at mind uh, at certain points. Third, when John uses young men, I think he continues to frame these terms uh, in spiritual growth, not necessarily physical age. So the young men would be those who have endured and persevered to a greater extent in the Christian faith than uh, recent converts. And fourth, when John uses fathers, I think he means to describe those who are most experienced, sanctified, and wise among them. They are likely your teachers and elders. But wait! John said, uh, Jesus said, to call no man father right? Matthew 23, 9. Well, perhaps the apostle John, who, you know, saw and heard Jesus in person say that command in the first place, perhaps he knew that calling the most faithful among them as fathers was not a violation of Jesus's command. Uh, Matthew 23, 9, you go back and look at that, that likely refers to men who want to take the place of God. This is what Jesus accuses certain religious leaders of doing. Uh, whether they were doing so intentionally or unintentionally, Jesus says concerning that kind of man, don't call him a father. Don't call him father. So I think perhaps there is specificity to these terms, little children, children, young men, fathers. Verse uh, 1, it says, little children, I've written to you so that you may not sin. Nick, is it possible not to sin? 
So in this single verse here, 2 verse 1, John refutes both what is called antinomianism and legalism. The phrase that you may not sin would refute the one who claimed that because of full forgiveness of sin through Jesus, since my ticket is punched, so to speak, ollie ollie income free, I'm going to do whatever I want, eat, drink, be merry, since my sins are covered by Jesus' blood. That would be an abuse of the sacrifice of Christ. And so that is how John is confronting the antinomian, the anti-law group. Uh, at the same time, the phrase, and if anyone does sin, refutes the perfectionist who insists on a sinless life in self and in others. Both extremes are refuted by John. Specific mm. to the question of perfectionism, I do not find here or anywhere else in Scripture where actual, literal, sinless perfection, the complete freedom from sin in word, thought, and deed is attainable or has been attained by any humans except for Christ. Uh, indeed, the holiest people always have an awareness of their own sin before holy God. Due to the flesh, the world, and the devil, the war continues. And we know that we succumb to temptation more often than we like to admit. And yet, we must admit it, confess it. But good news, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Hmm. So that's what I see here. Alex, what do you think? I think that's well said. Later in chapter 5, we'll see a sin that leads to death and a sin which does not lead to death. And of course, that will connect back to what was said in chapter 1, walking in the light versus walking in the darkness. While walking in the light, one will still sin, but if sin is the settled state of our disposition, then we are actually walking in darkness. Uh, loyalty, intention, and practice, these all come into play for these ideas, as we've noted in the last episode as well. But now it's time for a uh, grammar hammer. Did you bring a hammer this time, Nick? Let me see what I got here. How's that? Yeah, that was a little <laughs> hammer, a little baby <laughs> yeah, hammer. Right. Here we go, grammar hammer. Propitiation, Nick. Talk to us about propitiation. It's here in verse 2. It's also in chapter 4, verse 10. Yeah, so briefly, the definition for propitiation would be satisfaction or removal or turning away of God's wrath due to Christ. Uh, so to expand upon that, God's settled disposition toward evil and sin is wrath. Due to sin, people are under the wrath of God. Yet we also know that God loves the world. Under the old covenant, God gave the blood of bulls and goats for his people on the altar to make atonement for your souls, he says in Leviticus 17 and verse 11. Now this anticipated what God would do in the New Testament. God takes the initiative and he sends his unique son to be propitiation for our sins and the sins of the whole world. So God's wrath needed to be propitiated. God's love did the propitiating. Uh, John R. W. Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ, puts it this way, it is God himself who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated. God himself who in holy love undertook to do the propitiating, and God himself who in the person of his son died for the propitiation of our sins. God, God put forward himself in the form of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as propitiation, as wrath satisfaction by the blood of the Son of God. So long as we remain uncovered by his blood due to our disobedience and rebellion, we remain under God's wrath. But 
when we uh, believe and obey God and are covered by Christ's blood, we escape God's holy wrath. So that's my succinct definition explanation of propitiation. Alex, what do you think? Yeah, when speaking of propitiation and especially the blood of Christ, the question sometimes comes up, why blood? Why blood for propitiation? Well, you can read my thesis, <laughs> but here's the, cl here's the cliff notes, right? Living creatures need spiritual life force in order to grow, to live, to act, etc. God said that life force is contained in the blood of all living creatures. Our own personal life force is not sufficient to sustain all of creation, let alone renew all of creation. However, Jesus Christ is the Word and Creator of all things. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Then, the Incarnation wrapped up the, the power which created the universe in human flesh. Thus, Jesus' blood contains the life force which created all things, and therefore, when released from his body upon the cross, it is now sufficient and present within the world in order to renew and recreate all things. This is how he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Uh, despite the Calvinistic pleading that God would not waste one drop of Christ's blood, they fail to understand that one cannot waste that which is infinite. Come to the fountain free, tis for you and me, the song says. So speak to that more, Nick, verse 2. How do you think Jesus' is, uh, is, propitiation is for the sins of the whole world? Yes, yeah, this is, uh, this is a, an important text here, and I believe the answer to this question is rooted in the nature of the atonement. Uh, in addition to the context of the passage, both the immediate context and the wider context. Uh, most read this verse and they assume that it says that Jesus died for everyone. And the challenge of laying aside what we think the text says is so that what the text actually says remains. That's uh, the challenge here. The, the immediate and larger context, in addition to the nature of the atonement, what propitiation actually is, I believe undercuts uh, that view that says that uh, here Jesus is dying for each and every person ever. Uh, so, why do I say that? If the sins of the whole world means the sins of each and every person ever, then no one would experience the wrath of God since Jesus is the sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath for sin. Jesus, uh, John, excuse me, does not present the atonement of Christ as possible, but as actual. This is written in the indicative mood. He is the propitiation. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. He is, uh, his sacrifice on the cross in reality in actuality, satisfies the wrath of God for the sins of the whole world. But if that's the case, then wouldn't John be contradicting John, since it's John who says God's wrath abides on the disobedient, uh, John 3 and verse 36. In addition, John envisions the final outpouring of God's wrath upon sin in the second death, a lake of fire. And so scripture is clear that in the here and now and in the there and then, people suffer the wrath of God for sins. But the wrath of God cannot exist now or at the end if Jesus is really propitiation for the sins of each and every person ever, since that would mean the punishment for their sins, wrath, has been satisfied, turned away, removed. And so the meaning of the words and the phrases necessitates delimitation of the phrase for the sins of the whole world. Assuming the sins of the whole world means the sins of each and every person ever, 
would require universalism, which is the doctrine that teaches the salvation of each and every person. But such a view is foreign to Scripture. Therefore, every view which seeks to maintain consistency with the entire biblical witness must delimit the phrase, the whole world, lest they end up with the heresy of universalism. So then, what does John mean when he writes that Jesus himself is propitiation for the sins of the whole world? Now, as we've argued elsewhere, there's a connection between John's gospel and this epistle. The epistle is intended to clarify and condemn distortions produced by the errant reading of what appear to be proto-Gnostics. Therefore, there are strong allusions to words and phrases that are found in John's gospel. And the entire second verse here in 1 John chapter 2 is another example of just such an echo. In John chapter 11, verses 51 and 52, John offers an interpretation of the high priest Caiaphas's announcement that it is better that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And John writes that Caiaphas was an unwitting prophet, God overruling his proclamation, so that he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So notice the linguistic connections as well as the parallel construction. Jesus' death for a specific people, and not for that specific people only, but for a larger group. And so such a construction, I believe, is intentional by John. For our sins corresponds to for the nation, that is the believing Jewish remnant. But while Christ sacrifices for the Jew first, it is not for the sins of the Jewish remnant only. The children who are scattered abroad corresponds to the sins of the whole world. That would be believing Gentiles. That propitiation is specific to Christians is also clear by the substitutionary nature of the atonement for our sins, for the sins. John repeats this again and again. With the satisfaction of the penalty for sin comes the change in how the holy God deals with us on account of Christ. Christians are no longer under the wrath of God. Now we have eternal life. In addition, the contextual argument, which is aimed squarely at the proto-Gnostic heretics, further delimits the meaning of the phrase, this is the whole world, to Christians. Is Jesus propitiation for the sins of the proto-Gnostic heretics who deny they even have sin? How could he be? They claim to have no sin, which needs to be propitiated. Thus, since Jesus is not propitiation for these individuals, the whole world cannot mean each and every person ever. Furthermore, the nature of the atonement concerning its permanence also factors into the interpretation. Jesus himself is propitiation. That's a present tense verb. So, it may be that for our sins may capture the living believers when John wrote this epistle, but the ingathering of God's children who are scattered abroad, and that's uh, a perfect tense. They were scattered and continue to be scattered. Uh, those uh, God's children scattered abroad in the whole world continues. There are other children of God throughout all ages and in various places throughout the whole world that Christ continues to gather into one as they come to faith in Christ. Their sins are propitiated. All of these delimiting factors lead me to recognize that when John says Jesus himself is propitiation for the sins of the whole world, he means that Jesus' sacrifice, his blood, as was mentioned back in 1 verse 7, his blood satisfies God's wrath for the sins of all believers from all 
tribes, language, nations, peoples, ethnicities, times, places, and conditions. So uh, that's a bit about what I see here in 2 verse 2. Alex, talk to us about how Jesus is propitiation for the sins of the whole world. Okay. So you described the delimiting view, um, summarized at the end there. The propitiation for the sins of the whole world is uh, not for every person ever, but for all believers from all nations, times, and places. Um, I do not share the delimiting view. I view Christ's propitiation as sufficient for the sins of the whole world. Uh, I think this view fits the motif of a new genesis and a new creation account that John presents in his gospel and carries over into his epistle. Uh, The reason that this does not lead me to universalism is because propitiation is presented as a twofold component, uh, a lock and key, if you will. Christ's propitiation created the gate by which anyone could walk through should they bring with them the keys of faith to open. Uh, Later, John will say in uh, 4.14 that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And I take that in the same way as in uh, 2.2, Christ is the Savior of the world, every person. And his propitiation is sufficient even if every person alive ever were to accept his salvation. But to me, that's the key. Will they accept the offer? A real offer which has uh, plenty of life force to go around, should they say yes. Out of Christ's pierced heart on the cross, poured out into all of creation, a river of living waters. Those waters have flooded the earth, and by faith, we tap into those waters. Specifically, I think, at baptism and in the Eucharist. Uh, These living waters, the creative life force present in all places, makes possible a baptism out in the wilderness for the Ethiopian eunuch. It makes possible for the Christian to take the Lord's Supper in every nation as more disciples are made. The world, covered in sin, abiding under the wrath of God, has now been blanketed by a mist of grace floating in the air. And though blind, they have only to grope for it by faith, and they will find it. The propitiation for our sins exists in the world already, ever since Calvary, before we could even accept it. That's why the kingdom of God went global after the cross and not before the cross. Uh, on the other hand, though, if, uh, if this is a delimiting view, if Christ only died for the Christians of each age, then uh, to me, I see that as inevitably leading to predestination and fatalism, uh, just like Calvinism teaches. And that leads to other things like, uh, you know, people were, were damned before they even existed. And, and so I, I don't think that's what John has in mind. Uh, of course, you know, there are other views out there, but this is this is the way I view it. And as you were talking, you know, I think I understood a little bit more of what you were saying um, concerning the indicative mood, right? And so uh, propitiation not being a possibility, but an actuality. And I think it had to be written in that mood so that so that the Christian would be confident that they do have actual propitiation. Uh, their eternal life is not um, on shaky ground. They have a solid foundation to stand on. But I think you have to take that also into consideration with the other components, which sound like people do have to accept the reality. They do have to receive the reality. The Father has accepted the reality, the propitiation. But now it's in the hands of of all people to choose whether they accept the reality of the propitiation and thus take advantage of that. Uh, Nick, did you want to add anything to that or say anything to that? So I I do believe that there needs to be a distinction between 
the application of this propitiation in time and space throughout history, uh, which would be, of course, by faith. I emphasized uh, the aspect of faith, belief, um, in, in my discussion. So I don't discount that at all. Uh, but at the same time, when Christ dies on the cross, he does not say, it is possible. He says, it is finished. Uh, the work of atonement, propitiation, um, the ransom, all those uh, big, beautiful Bible words uh, is done. It's accomplished. Um, and more could be said about uh, the nature of the atonement, the intention of the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, in in the atonement as well, but uh, I think we've upholstered that subject pretty well. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I think I hear what you're saying, and I, and, I, and for me, the way I see it is, um, the propitiation is done; it is finished; it is accomplished. Um, but there's two sides to it. The side from God's uh, position is finished. God has provided propitiation; it is there; He has accepted it. Uh, but there's a, another side to that relationship that has to be accepted through the belief, through the faith, through the choosing, uh, through the walking in the light. And so I think it really is completed and done on God's side. And now it's our side. It, it's our side to hear that good news, to accept it. Um, but yeah, uh, like you said, there could be much said. Uh, do you want the last word here? No, we won't go down the rabbit hole. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, all right, fair enough, fair enough. I mean, part of it is we will circle back to a little bit of this, I think, when we start talking about the world. Yes. uh, And John's usage of it. Yes. What, verse 15, 16, 17. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think that the the usage of words, uh, specifically the term cosmos by John, also Mm -hmm. gets factored in here. That's that's a bit of this, so. Yeah. Nope, I agree. A lot of factors in play. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Nick. Well, since we have so much to move through, let's keep moving. Verses 3 and 4, what does it mean to know him, that is, Christ? Yeah, so verses 3 and 4, by this we we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Uh, whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments, is a liar. The truth is not in him. And, and John here uses the perfect tense. Uh, and what that means is, it indicates past completed action with present continued results. We have come to know and we continue to know him. And such an emphasis on knowledge of God, knowledge of Christ, is deliberate on John's part since he's working to expose the heresy of the protognostics who claim to have knowledge of God, usually based on some ethereal experience that they had had. However, as John has demonstrated thus far, the walk, the lifestyle, of the false teachers is bound up in disobedience and sin despite their claims to the contrary. And so to know him is to obey him. Knowing God has moral obligations. Indeed, the the present tense for obey demonstrates this is an ongoing practice for those claiming to know God. Since we know him, we continue to obey him. Uh, What do you think about uh, this phrase, to know him, Alex? I believe John uses the phrase to know him as a reference to covenant relationship. Uh, In the Old Testament, Adam knew his wife Eve, which described the consummation of the marriage covenant uh, through the union of bodies. 
Marriage becomes a common metaphor later for Yahweh's covenant with his people. And later, Jeremiah describes the crooked priests who do not know Yahweh their God, uh, Jeremiah 2.8. And that even the people of Israel as a whole do not know Yahweh God, Jeremiah 4.22. Now, to be sure, they knew of Yahweh God. Of course they did. But they lived in a state of self-deception, sinfulness, idolatry, and ultimately broken covenant. They should have known, in other words, they should have maintained covenant loyalty, but they broke covenant loyalty and went on to know other gods, which they had previously not known, and thus incurred the curse of Deuteronomy 11.28. John's gospel says, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. The world was not in covenant with Yahweh, but even those who were, Israel, some did not receive him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. There you have John's explanation that a covenant with the Creator God, Yahweh, wrapped in human flesh, was possible for the whole world through belief in Jesus Christ, the Word which became flesh. With that covenant came a new creation, thus making us children of God. So John describes here what covenant loyalty looks like keeping his commands. The focus isn't on how we perform while keeping his commands, but I think the emphasis is on uh, whose commands we are performing. Are they from Jesus Christ or from the false teachers? Are they from the apostles or from those who have departed from the apostles? So if the focus is on whose commands they are, that is Jesus, then we should look to how Jesus lived his life. And thus, that brings us to verse 6. How do we walk in the same manner that Jesus walked? What do you think, Nick? Yeah, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. There is moral weight to claim to abide in him, to abide in Christ, in God. Uh, and, and the moral weight here is seen in the word ought. Ought carries the weight of debt, or something owed. And so we owe it to God to live like Christ. And of course, that's all in the light of what God has accomplished in Christ through the cross. Because of that, we ought to live like Christ. So this is John's way of echoing what is said elsewhere in the New Testament. Follow him, imitate Christ. He set us an example that we should walk in his steps. Okay, So uh, that's what I see here about walking in the same manner as Jesus. What say you? Yeah, this would give the uh, little children of the faith a first century equivalent of what would Jesus do? From what they have heard about Jesus from the apostles, would Jesus act and live the way these false teachers are acting and living? I think John assumes that a simple observation would suffice for answering that question. But how do we walk in the same manner as Christ? Part of the answer is in the verse, we abide in him. Abiding in someone denotes that you're under the umbrella of their authority and jurisdiction. When Jesus walked on the earth, he always went about doing his Father's business, abiding in the Father, acting and speaking as the Father acts and speaks. And thus, the only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, he has revealed him. So too, we also must uh, reorient our thinking and our spiritual vision to ask, is this what the Father is doing? Is this what the Father says? Walking in the same manner as Christ walked, then, is not about sinless perfection on our part, but the mindset and desire to be in line with the will of God. Such a mindset is acquired over time, uh, over much practice, and slowly we are transformed by the renewing of our mind to know his will, Romans 12, 2. 
That's part of our sanctification. So Nick, verses 7 and 8, John has a new commandment and an old commandment. What exactly is the new and old commandment John refers to? I believe it's love one another. This is from John 13, 34 and 35, where Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so John here, in uh, 2 verses 7 and 8 of 1 John, says, uh, Beloved, I'm writing to you a new commandment, uh, no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. They've had it from the beginning of their Christian walk. I believe that's the way that phrase is being used there. And it is new in kind, and it is new in time. The kind of love is seen in Jesus' statement to his disciples, even as I have loved you. And it's new in time in that it is the standard for the new covenant. Uh, So that's the new old commandment, as it were, uh, that I see here. Alex, what do you think? I think that's exactly right. What John refers to as the old commandment and new commandment are one and the same thing. When Jesus gave the new commandment to love one another, it was new because it added the qualification, as I have loved you, which brings in the sacrificial component of the living Christ, the incarnate word. Every Sunday, uh, right now, our church, uh, when we take the Lord's Supper, we chant 1 John 3.16 when we take the Eucharist. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for all of us. Therefore, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. I'm not going to sing it for you now. You'll have to come to church with us. But for John's audience, this is old news. But in the scheme of redemption history, this is still new, thus a new and old commandment. Uh, Verses 9 through 11, Nick, what does it mean to love and hate your brother? Yeah, verses 9 through 11, uh, whoever says he's in the light, and hates his brother, still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Whoever hates his brothers in darkness and walks in darkness does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. When people think about love, and, and I guess this could be true for hate as well, uh, most think of the subjective aspect of these particular emotions, the, the emotional, the, the feelings part of love. And, and that's important. But we must not lose sight of the other aspect, and that is that love is objective. I define love as the overarching singular desire to see Christ formed in another, uh, namely your brother or sister in Christ. Thus, hatred could be actively aiming to undermine those formative efforts. However, even a passive indifference toward a person's spiritual formation into Christ, I believe, qualifies as hatred, since it's certainly not love. So that's what I see here going on with this uh, love-hate business uh, in verses 9 through 11. What do you think, Alex? I'm going to take a different approach here. Uh, This is one of John's many contrasting templates we noted in the introduction episode, love and hate, light and darkness. Seeing as how I already explained the covenant idea contained in uh, verse 3 concerning the phrase, to know him, I can't help but think that we are still working with more covenant terminology. If you remember toward the end of last season, uh, season 3, episode 21, we covered Malachi chapter 1, which uses love and hate to describe Jacob and Esau. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. I proposed then, and I propose to you now, that love was a word of covenant faithfulness, and hate was a word of covenant brokenness or absence of covenant. 
Essentially, I think John is saying that those who have left the covenant community, which we know has happened to this audience from verse 19, we'll get there, they have essentially then, those who have left, broken covenant with God. In other words, you can't be in covenant with God while being out of covenant with God's people. God's people are those who follow the apostles because that was the abiding command and will of Jesus when he prayed, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. So these false teachers and those who follow them have left the covenant community all the while claiming to still be walking in the light. John says such a thing is impossible. To love your brother is to remain in the covenant community. To hate him is to leave the covenant community. For there is only one body of Christ, governed by the word of Christ, which comes through the apostles of Christ. Nick, verses 12 through 14. What does John mean when he calls the fathers, uh, young men, and little children, those different those different titles, familial titles? What do you think? Yeah, little children, fathers, young men. Yeah, all these uh, different uh, terms and, and phrases. Uh, some think this refers to various levels of maturity among the Christians to whom John is writing. So uh, children or, or little children uh, would be recent converts. The young men, they've reached spiritual uh, maturity or uh, they're spiritually strong. Fathers, uh, they would be the ones who've been in Christ the longest and, and have perhaps the greatest growth. So uh, I don't see a, any reason as to disagree with that uh, assessment from others. Uh, what do you think, Alex? No, I think that's right. And, and of course, I, I spoke to that a lot in the earlier question. Um, but then when he addresses them, he alternates back and forth between past tense and present tense. I, I am writing, I have written. Why do you think John alternates back and forth like that? So one idea is that I write, which is a, a present tense verb, uh, for the first three in verses 12 and 13, I write is referring to the epistle, while I wrote, which are the, the latter three at the end of verse 13 into 14, uh, which is, those are aorist tense verbs, kind of the, the snapshot in the past. Uh, some say that refers to the gospel. Uh, so th that's one idea. Uh, I write this epistle. I wrote the gospel. It could be what John is saying here. Mm -hmm. At the same time, the aorist tense verbs could be what are called epistolary epistles, uh, aorist, I should say, uh, in which case all six statements could be translated, I write. And in fact, there is a similar usage of the uh, epistolary aorist down in verse 21, where he says, I write to you, and that is also the aorist tense. So um, th those are that's a couple of uh, explanations as to, to what's going on here. Hmm. But Alex, these, these are kind of redundant phrases, uh, redundant statements uh, in, here in verses 12 and 13. Why do John's purpose statements here seem so redundant? Yeah, redundant and uh, confusing a little bit. <laughs> John hmm. says, I am writing to the little children, fathers and young men. Then he switches, I have written to the children, fathers and young men. If it's all supposed to be I write, um, it still ends up sounding a little redundant. If we break it up in each subgroup, here's what he says. John says to the fathers, you know him who has been from the beginning. He says that two times. John says to the young men, you have overcome the evil one. He says that two times. But on the second time, he adds, you are strong and the word of God abides in you. 
Uh, John says to the little children, your sins have been forgiven you for his namesake one time. And John says to the children, which I take is maybe all of them, uh, you know the Father. I think the redundancy uh, has to be intentional. In this short section, John affirms their covenant status by saying they know the Father. He affirms their forgiveness, their victory in Christ over the evil one, and their spiritual strength, which comes from the word of God empowering them. But by addressing each subgroup, John paints a picture of not one individual Christian doing all of these things by themselves, but instead the whole uh, of the covenant community accomplishing these things together. And these affirmations uh, give John's readers a firm foundation from which to be confident about their salvation, uh, a confidence that John will uh, bring up again later in his epistle. The affirmations here are given because John has just spoken sharply concerning the distinction between light and dark, loving and hating their brother, and the implications for their covenant status. John knows that his audience is in a fragile state of mind, which he'll continue to speak to, like in uh, chapter 3, verse 20, where he says God is greater than their heart, even though their heart condemns them. The redundancy serves to affirm their covenant status as a community, the one body of Christ. And that status in John's eyes is the same today as it was yesterday, despite those who have left and followed the false teachers. So we get to verses 15 through 17 now. Um, Nick, why does John say to not love the world but then he also says that god loved the world how do you reconcile that yes and for that matter how do we fulfill the commands to love your neighbor and love your enemy aren't they part of the world too yeah so uh, a faulty understanding here could lead to uh, some very confused readings and application of of other texts um so God so loved the world, that's, of course, John 3.16. And so that's that's the contrast, uh, the contrasting verse here, right? 3.16 in John's Gospel, and now 1 John 2.15. And as our good friend Hank Hanegraaff likes to say, <laughs> words are not univocal, they are equivocal. And that means the meaning of a word is not static. That is always the same in every given context. But rather, they, the meaning of a word is dynamic. It is context-driven. And that's the case with the word world in John's writings, all of John's writings, the gospel, the three epistles, and also Revelation. John uses the term cosmos in a variety of ways. And in fact, I found a paper, uh, and most commentaries will point this out, uh, concerning John and his uses of cosmos, he uses that Greek term more than anybody else. I mean, it's overwhelming the, the number of times John uses the term. And also, given all those different usages, he uses it in a variety of ways. And uh, depending on who's counting, it is anywhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 14 different ways that John uses that term, cosmos, world. Hmm. One example where John uses the word world in differing ways, even in a single verse, is John 1, verse 10. He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And there seems to be three different usages here. He, Jesus, was in the world, the inhabited world, and the world was made through him, that is, the created order, that would include humans, and the world yet the world did not know him. And that world there would be fallen humanity. So the question is, 
how is John using cosmos in John 3.16, and how is he using that term here in 2 verses 15 through 17? The difference is in how John is, is in how John is using the term in each passage. Now, even in John 3.16, there is variety in how world is being used. In verse 17, the Father sends the Son into the world to save the world, not condemn the world. So the result of God's love for the world is the world's salvation. Human salvation is in view here, since it is the purpose for which Christ came into the world. That is, he came from heaven into the created order, even into the earth. So it is the ones believing who have eternal life and are saved. The world, then, that is saved is composed of all the believers from every tribe, language, nation, and peoples. It is true that God loves humans, humanity, generally, sustaining their existence by his power. But believers are the objects of his love in salvation. Now, coming back to 1 John 2, verse 15, John's use of the word world here takes on a more abstract meaning, and it denotes a system which is hostile toward God, even to some degree, under the power of the evil one, as he'll say in chapter 5 and verse 19. It is composed of unholy desires prompted by the flesh and the eyes and, and pride. There are those who love the world and therefore do not have the Father's love in them. God's wrath abides upon them, as John writes in his gospel, John 3, verse 36. Such misplaced love does not characterize the Christian. To love that which is aligned against God is to have at best divided allegiance, but more probably it is altogether misplaced affections. And such affections belong to the old self. They're not to be tolerated or affirmed. They must be mortified, put to death. And new affections produced by the Spirit within us those new affections must be followed. Uh, so that's a bit about uh, John's usage <laughs> of the term world uh, in John 3.16 and 1 John 2, uh, verse 15 here. Alex, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I agree. There's there's a lot of fluidity to John's use of the world, uh, even the 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 you know the same greek word being used in different ways in the same passage i think you gave a great example too of how one needs to search the rest of the passage for further details and that's what we mean by context when we do that in first john 2 we find that what john has in mind for the christian not to love uh when he says do not love the world is the things that are in the world the lust of the eyes the lust of the flesh and the pride of life in modern vernacular we could summarize that as money sex and power each of those things can be used for good in the proper context, but John speaks to the love of those things and the parasitic way in which ungodly people abuse each other through such means. So you got to look at uh, the other the other uh, verses and passages and put together the contextual answer, which um, goes above and beyond, but not compromising with the the Greek word itself or the Greek. Uh, what do you call it, the, the structure of the, of the Greek sentence itself. So verse 17, he goes on to say then, the world is passing away. Nick, how is the world passing away? Yeah, along with its desires. Um, this compromised system, uh, which again seems to be John's usage of the term world here, 
It is a compromised system. It is at odds with God. It is antagonistic toward things that are holy. Uh, it is presently, uh, the world is passing away. That is a present tense verb there. So even in the first century, <clears throat> John is saying the world is passing away, and that is still true in the 21st century today. Mm-hmm. It is going out of business. That's uh, the way I kind of put it in modern vernacular uh, for folks. Uh, the, the world, it's, it's, it's been going out of business. It's a fire sale, so to speak. And so um, that's what I see here in terms of the world passing away. What do you think, Alex? I think that's right. Uh, this is equivalent to what John already said in verse 8, that the darkness is passing away. If we go back to John's gospel... It says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Ever since the incarnation, the powers of darkness which gripped this world since the fall of man, those dark powers have been playing a game of attrition. They are fighting desperately to delay the inevitable. Uh, Yes, their pride and their arrogance keeps them deceived about their own defeat, but when we look back over the history of the church— Each generation reveals pockets of darkness being dispersed and then occupied by those who walk in the light. For where the Christian is, there is light. So now we have in verse 18 that uh, John saying we are at the last hour. What is the last hour, Nick? What's interesting is there's there's no definite article in the original language. And what that that means is um, John doesn't write, uh, it is the last hour. It is a last hour. Now, it could mean, I suppose, uh, that the article is kind of implied in that, but simply a last hour uh, is what John wrote. This denotes to me that John is describing some critical period of time, not the, the last days of humanity, as it were. Uh, this doesn't refer to the end of the world, in other words. Um, uh, John thinking that uh, necessarily the world is going to end tomorrow could, but... Uh, He's talking about a time of the advancement of the kingdom of Christ, which would be troublesome. It would be perilous times. It would be marked by antichrists, as he's going to talk about here. Uh, So just an all-around tumultuous time period seems to be the idea of last hour here. That's what I see. Alex, what do you think? Here's how I see it. Uh, In the Hebrew reckoning of time, based on Genesis, which says, then there was evening and then there was morning day one, day two, day three, etc. The night comes first, and then the day. The last hour, I think, is a phrase John uses to parallel what he just said about the darkness passing away and the world passing away. In the scheme of creation history, the coming of Christ represents that last hour of the night where darkness lingers while the sun begins to rise. All who have lived since the coming of Christ live in that last hour until the full light of day when he returns in glory for judgment and uh, and the resurrection. And so last hour, I think, is describing in terms of uh, this last age that we're living in until he returns. And again, uh, John piggybacks on that Genesis creation narrative over and over and over again. Uh, we saw that in chapter one. We saw that in John's gospel, chapter one especially. He does that a lot. So who is the Antichrist then, Nick? Verse 18, verse 22. 
Yeah, when when most people think of Antichrist, they maybe think of the movie The Omen, right, with Damien. <laughs> and, uh, you know, some uh, some leader maybe with 666 written on his head under his hair, hidden from view. Or maybe they think about the Left Behind series, right, Nikolai Carpathia and all that. But they usually think of some shadowy political figure who rises to power as leader of the one world government. Such a concept is foreign to the New Testament writers who, and really the New Testament writer who actually mentions Antichrist. John is the only one who uses the term Antichrist. The word itself, broken down, means one who stands in the place of or as a substitute for Christ. One even who stands against in opposition to Christ. Jesus himself warned there would be false Christs. Over in Matthew 24 and verse 24, there would be imposters. In addition to this, both Jesus and John mention multiple false Christs or antichrists, not just a singular antichrist. John says, you heard, past tense, you've heard uh, that antichrist is coming. Well, he's here. In fact, there's many of them, uh, he, he says here. Uh, And that's why John writes about the many antichrists. And while Jesus speaks prophetically in Matthew 24, which may be what you have heard there in verse 18, uh, that the the false Christs were coming, John writes, many antichrists were on the scene in his day. They have come. And it's a perfect tense there, which indicates that they've arrived and they remain on the scene. So John is specific about who antichrists, the antichrists were. They were the false teachers. Uh, from my perspective, the proto-Gnostic heretics who were perverting the true doctrine of Christ. And specifically in their teaching, verse 22 says they deny the Father and the Son. Uh, Verse 22 goes on to say they deny Jesus as the Christ. Uh, Chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, they deny that Jesus had come in the flesh. And in 2 John, verse 7, where they're mentioned again, they were deceivers. These were men who were leading people into apostasy with their heretical doctrines. Uh, So those are the many antichrists, as I see it. Alex, what do you think about uh, who is the antichrist? Hmm. Okay. Uh, Perhaps I see a little more ambiguity here. I do agree that many antichrists have come in John's day. The text seems pretty clear about that. Uh, John also says, though, just as you heard, that antichrist is coming. Uh, Many are here, says John, but you heard that a singular one is coming. Now, I'm not convinced that this text points towards uh, a left-behind-style global leader in the future. Uh, Maybe some other text might get you there, uh, but not here. I do think there is a singular Antichrist that John uh, references here, though, but he reveals who it is in, or what it is, in chapter 4, verse 3. He says it's a spirit, a spiritual entity is uh, the way that I interpret that is that John reveals in chapter 4, verse 3, that the Antichrist is a spiritual entity. And through this spiritual entity, the Antichrist, false teachers then speak heresies. So the apostles speak truth through the Holy Spirit, right? But false teachers through the Antichrist spirit speak heresies. So who is this spiritual entity? Or maybe we should ask, what? is this spiritual entity. You know, we speak of the church in the singular form, but it is made up of many individuals, though the corporate name is singular, the church. What if 
And I'm speculating here, so I'm throwing that out here. Don't stone me yet. <laughs> the Antichrist, what if the Antichrist is the singular corporate name given to the alliance of dark powers in the heavenly realms, formed specifically to combat the church after these powers had already been disarmed by Christ at the cross? And that's in Colossians 2.14. You know, in past episodes, I've noted concerning that verse, my belief that this was the, uh, the moment that the dark powers lost their sovereign right to rule the other nations, thus clearing the way for the Great Commission. So they've lost the sovereign right to rule other nations. The Great Commission has been cleared. Uh, the way for the Great Commission has been cleared. So, so what do these dark powers do after the cross then? Uh, I think they, they formed an alliance. And if this is the case, then we can think of Antichrist in the same way as the Gerasene demoniac in the Gospels. He comes running and screaming towards Jesus. Jesus says, what is your name? And he replies, Legion, for we are many. Now, it is no longer Jesus versus Legion, but Church versus Antichrist. Will Antichrist uh, come as a corporate whole to inhabit a body one day, like the Gerasene demoniac? Uh, we shall see. Maybe. We'll see. Nick, any thoughts there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. So, in the same way that the father prepared a body for the son, so uh, there's some kind of dark power that is preparing a body, or could be preparing a body, for this spiritual entity to embody so that they come into the world? Maybe. We'll see. Maybe. Right. We'll see. <laughs> it could happen. Time will tell. <laughs> All right, verse 19, Nick. How did these antichrists... Go out from them. What's that about? So it seems like they removed themselves from the fellowship. Uh, they, they left. They get up and go, got up and went, right? Uh, and in their leaving, they revealed their heart. They were not devoted to the Father, the Son, the Gospel, the Christian fe uh, their fellow Christians. Uh, their hearts were full of love for the world and the things of the world. So that, that's what I see here. What do you think? Yeah, it almost sounds like an exorcism, you know, when Jesus said the unclean spirit went out from the man. Hmm. Uh, I think that's right. You know, by leaving the covenant community, these false teachers uh, at the same time lost the covenant with the Father and the Son. And so you can't have one without the other. Uh, verse uh, 20 and also verse 27 talks about these Christians, they have the anointing. They have an anointing. What is the anointing, Nick? Yeah, and the, the original language, uh, we actually get our English word charisma from it, right? The charisma. And it usually points, <clears throat> excuse me, to some assignment. Uh, it points to assigning someone some task with the implication that there are some supernatural sanctions, blessings, endowments that go along with it. In a very strict sense, it means to smear something on something else. Uh, and so the Hebrews would understand that this was an oil prepared for pouring over someone, especially priests, as you see in Exodus 28, verse 37, Leviticus 6, and verse 22. Also, especially kings, 1 Samuel 9, verse 16, 10, verse 1, 15, verse 1. And also, especially sometimes, prophets, as in 1 Kings 19, and verse 16. And by this anointing, they were regarded as imbued with the Holy Spirit and with certain divine gifts. 
you can see 1 Samuel 16, verse 13, and Isaiah 61 and verse 1 for more on that. Now, based on what John writes, these Christians, uh, they had the anointing abiding in them, uh, as he says in verse 27. Uh, they were aware of the anointing. Uh, they, they know it, uh, 2 verse 20. They were able to discern truth, uh, 2 verse 21 talks about that. They <clears throat> had no need for anyone to teach them, as uh, John says in verse 27. They were taught in all things, verse 27 says, and they got this anointing from Christ. He's the Holy One, I am persuaded here in verse twenty of first John chapter two. So for the Christian, especially in the first century, this is the gift or the gifts of the Holy Spirit as an efficient aid in obtaining knowledge of the truth while rejecting falsehood. So that's what I see here about this anointing. Alex, what do you think? I think that's well said. And notice how the Christians knowing all things doesn't mean the Christian is omnipotent or omniscience is what I should say. Uh, they knew all things they needed to know regarding Jesus and what was necessary to walk in the light. This knowledge also wasn't instantaneous. There was still a need for the corporate body of Christ to come together and figure things out, like the council at Jerusalem in Acts 15. The result of that council, led by James, was considered to be from the Holy Spirit, verse 28 of Acts 15 even though it did take some debate to conclude what seemed good to them. This anointing then can be viewed as that which was guided by the Holy Spirit, which would of course include the word of God handed down by the apostles, whether by letter or uh, by word of mouth, and then also the continued guidance of the Holy Spirit as the church works things out through moments such as the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. The anointing then applies to the church as a corporate whole. You all, plural, y'all know all things. I think that's what he's mean, meaning there. Uh, verse 20 again, though, Nick, what does it mean that these um, Christians know all things, they have all knowledge? Uh, get, talk a little bit more about that. What do you think? Yeah, there's a, a significant textual variant here. Uh, you you all have knowledge is what my English standard says there, uh, reflecting uh, one of the readings. Uh, and, and that's part of the reason for the difference in translation as well as that textual variant. It comes down to... Which form of the word all, in the original language, the, the root of that is pas, which form of that word did John use? Uh, if it is, you know all things, panta in the original, then John is leaving the things possessed rather ambiguous. However, in following the earliest uh, manuscripts, you all have knowledge, uh, which the original term there is pontes. Uh, you all have knowledge is the better reading. So John emphasizes that due to the anointing and contrary to the heretical proto-gnostic claims that they were the few who had knowledge, John is saying the whole church, pontes, you all possess knowledge of God. Mm. Uh, so... That's that's what I see here going on uh, in, with this. Yep, I think that's right. Moving on to verse 23, Nick, why is confession of the Son connected to having the Father? Talk about that. Recall from our previous episode that confession can mean to speak the same word, homologeo. And so 
the father has spoken concerning his son. Uh, and you can you read about that in the Gospels. Uh, and the son cannot be separated from the father. He always does the father's will. So confession or denial. For John, there is no middle ground. If one is not actively confessing the son, then it's tantamount to a denial of the son. Uh, and so that's what I see here about the connection between confessing the son and having the father. What do you think, Alex? I think that's right. And the confessional statement concerning the son is that Jesus is the son and that Jesus is the Christ. A confessional statement, by the way, which these false teachers would not make. This connection uh, goes back to John's gospel, which says, No one has ever seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has revealed him. Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. If we deny his deity, then we at the same time deny the deity of the Father whom he has revealed, which undoes the basis of the gospel. What? Someone would do such a thing? Of course. That is if they wanted to preach a different gospel. And that's the situation the first century church found itself in uh, time and time again with these false teachers, with these uh, uh, antichrists. Verse 24, Nick, what is John referring to regarding what they heard from the beginning? Yeah, uh, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. This seems to be the apostolic doctrine, uh, and it's all the things that John has been writing thus far. God is light, eternal life found in Jesus the Christ, and in him only. Uh, Jesus is the Son of God. Love one another. The heretics would not abide in these things. They would not remain in them, and they didn't. That's why they, they left. I think that's right. Well, what does it mean then to abide in the Son and the Father, verse 24 and 28? Uh, abide or remain or continue in him. Those are all different uh, ways that term is translated. It means to stay with the Father and the Son, to stay with God. The present tense further accentuates the ongoing nature of this. It points to relationship, especially the deepening of that relationship, the longer one remains or abides or stays with God. That's what I see here. What do you think about abiding in the Son and the Father, Alex? If we go back to John's gospel, like we have done many times, we'll keep doing that, then we can see Jesus using this abide language often, especially in chapters 14 and 15. Uh, when I preached through John's gospel last year in our church, I proposed that when Jesus refers to his disciples abiding in him and they in the Father, it denoted the idea of being under someone's authority, their guidance, their jurisdiction. But when Jesus talks about the Father abiding in himself and then himself abiding in his disciples, it denotes the idea of empowerment. So you have to look at what direction the abiding is going. Are we are we going up to abide in some someone or is someone coming down to abide in us? So when we abide in something, we put ourselves under that authority. But when that something abides in us, it empowers us to do what it is we are sent to do. What John's audience heard from the beginning was the word of life, which empowers them to walk in the light. Consequently, that keeps them abiding in the Father and the Son, which means to safely be under their authority, the treasured possession of the Father and the Son. Verse 27, if they need no one to teach them, like John says here, you need no one, you need no one to teach you, then why do they have teachers? Indeed, and, and why the epistle from John in the first place, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, verse 26 is, is the key here, I believe where John writes that I write these things to you 
about those who are trying to deceive you. Deceivers are afoot. But these Christians don't need the protognostic uh, deceptive heresy of the false teachers. They have the Spirit of God. And by the Spirit, they'll be able to test the spirits to determine if they're from God, as John will go on to say in chapter 4. I think that's right. Yeah, they have, they have no need of those guys to teach them, the certain ones who are out of step with the apostles, right? So it's specific to the context. You need no one to teach you, that is, no one who is like these proto-gnostics. Okay, now verse 28, we have John referring to when he appears. What is John referencing when he says, when he appears? This seems parallel with uh, the phrase at the end of the verse, at his coming. And, and since uh, you have these parallel statements, uh, it seems to be referring to the final coming of Christ. What do you think? That's right. Yeah, the last hour of darkness at the same time means the first hour of the light. And Jesus will return to bring in the full light of day. But don't be confused when storm clouds come to block out that morning light. The light still shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Behind the clouds, the light will eventually disperse uh, all, the, all the darkness, and we will come to see him uh, as he is. And that will lead us into chapter 3 as well, so hold that thought in your mind. But last question, verse 29, what does it mean to be born of him? This verb is a perfect passive, and so that, that reveals a couple of things. One, uh, children of God were born of God at some point in the past, and they stand begotten of God in the present. Uh, also, it is God who made these Christians children of God. And by the way, that's true for every Christian. That's the idea of the, the passive voice there, is you don't begot yourself, uh, but rather it is God who uh, gives you uh, the new birth, uh, and so this verse speaks not to the means by which one becomes a child of God, so much as it uh, speaks to the evidence that shows one is a child of God. Uh, he goes on here to say uh, that uh, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Doing and practicing righteousness is the evidence that you are a child of God. You are born of God. So that's what I see here about uh, the being born of him. Alex, what do you think? That's right. John's gospel. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not by blood, nor by the will of the flesh, nor by the will of man, but of God. So that belief then is the same belief uh, that leads to our, our birth. That same belief leads to our sanctification, See the archives on the book of James uh, at the end of season two. We talk about that, the nature of belief and uh, its action at the beginning point of our salvation and then the continuing of our salvation, working out of that salvation towards sanctification. And that's the end of chapter two, folks. John chapter two, it was a long one. Nick, final thoughts? So with this propitiation, he is propitiation. I want to go back to the indicative mood there mm -hmm. and the reality of um, that, that that points to. Because if it is a real thing, it is an actual thing, then that means that the sins of the whole world, our sins even, are... Uh, the wrath of God has truly been, really been, turned away from that. Um, 
And so therefore, if, if the wrath of God has been propitiated according to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, and we understand the whole world there as each and every uh, person who's ever lived, I don't see how it's avoidable, how we get around the idea of universalism then. Um, because uh, the punishment, the penalty has been paid on the cross. That's right. And it really actually uh, has taken place. Right. Uh, not, not the possibility of it, but in actuality. That's, that's, that's the nature of the gospel, by the way. It's always in the indicative mood. Um, so... Uh, for me, that's part of, I guess, why the, at least for this verse, right? Um, and if you want to go elsewhere and talk about other verses that uh, point to um, the uh, universal aspect of the atonement, that's fine. But for this verse here specifically, and, and especially considering the way John uh, uses the term cosmos in a variety of ways, uh, I think it's ungetaroundable that the nature of propitiation then really has satisfied the wrath of God for our sins, not only ours, but the sins of the whole world. The whole, the, the scope of God's redemptive activity among humanity. Um, yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, I hear what you're saying. And I think, again, I mean, I know, you, I know you disagree, but I'm just... Sure, okay. yeah. I, I, I think I understand what you're saying. Yes, it is, it the the wrath of God has actually been satisfied. The propitiation is a reality, but there are two uh, components from God's side, from the heavenly realms. It is it is done, but He does not force everyone to accept that grace, to accept that propitiation. If people don't accept it, then they can't benefit from it. God's wrath is turned away from them, but. Will they accept it? If they don't accept it, then they place themselves outside of the the umbrella of salvation. So, so let's get real wiggy here okay. with the cheese whiz. Okay. Uh, each and every person ever, does that apply to every person who's ever lived? Because th- there is there is a timelessness to the sacrifice of Christ, right? Um, we talk about how the sacrifice of Christ reaches backward in time and forward in time, mm-hmm. right? So does that mean that Jesus on the cross was propitiation for the sins of the Amorite high priest uh, under the old under the old law? I don't see how that, I don't see how it could be is the thing, which is part of the reason why I see delimitations to uh, the phrase "the sins of the whole world" there. Sure. Well, part of it has to do, I think, with um, not just uh, sin being this um, record of wrongs done, but the actual state of the world, the fabric of the world's reality due to sin. And this goes into what I've discussed in other times concerning cosmic geography. And so uh, sin in the world defiles uh, the space that that we occupy, and so there is sacred space, and then there's uh, 
there's dark space, there's there's unsacred space, space that has been defiled. And there are things in the Old Testament that people talk about to to cleanse space, to make it sacred, to uh, cleanse it from blood guilt. And uh, sometimes it describes the use of water or sacrificial blood or fire to cleanse the space. And so uh, we don't have time to get into all of those, but I think that's part of the equation for why the propitiation satisfies the wrath of God for the sins of the whole world. This is because it's taking into consideration the need for the whole world, that is the space, the, the, the occupied world, to be cleansed. And so it's, it's John's use of, of bringing all of those things into the equation where it's not just being used in one way like we saw in, in John's introduction prologue to his gospel, but it's being used to speak both of those who are present in Christ, taking advantage of that propitiation, uh, and the sins that cover the whole world uh, because of, of, of dark space that has to be made light through the spreading of the kingdom. So I don't disagree that there are times in the New Testament when sin is spoken of in reference uh, in, in an impersonal way which is kind of what I'm hearing, is you just impersonalize sin as kind of this darkness, this, uh, this sphere, uh, or it's over the sphere, or what have you. The problem with that is, that is not what John writes here. Sin is deeply personal. It is our sins that he writes about here. So I, I don't see how, how we, again, get around this business of uh, the, the personal nature of, of the atoning sacrifice of Christ as propitiation for the sins of the whole world. I think it's both and. I think it's okay. both and. All right, very good. <laughs> well, I mean, this is a good conversation. I, I appreciate um, circling back to it because I'm sure you know our audience uh, perhaps is, is having to mull these things over as well. C- certainly, I don't think it's simple. I mean, do you think it's simple? Uh, no, especially when we uh, kind of back off like we did there with uh, um, the the timeless scope of the atonement, the nature of that, mm-hmm. um, and I haven't, we haven't even touched on the the divine intention of the Father sending the Son, accomplishing atonement, the Holy Spirit applying that in time and space, um, and and all the various ways in which that's spoken of by Christ Himself as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, there's there's a lot of territory there. Uh, to cover when it comes to the nature of the atonement. Yeah, absolutely. And I think even um, perhaps right now, particularly in uh, modern scholarship, uh, there is a sort of a growing voice for um, going back to the atonement theory. I don't know if you've come across that or not, but it seems like that seems that, that seems to be on people's radars right now as well. There's a, a large body of, uh, of writing. Um, uh, on both sides of the aisle, right? Um, uh, concerning the the extent of the atonement, in particular, mm-hmm. right? Is it uh, is it a particular or definite uh, atonement, or is it a universal or general atonement? And uh, smart cats on both sides of the debate. So, yeah, for sure. And I think there are even some who uh, I would not agree with, but I think there's a growing number of people who want to. Um, perhaps because of the, the distastefulness of it, maybe to a modern audience, they want to get rid of the substitutionary component of atonement. Mm. Um, 
but I don't, I don't think that's uh, possible. <laughs> so, um, well, there you go, folks. Getting uh, high theology from the ivory tower at the end of swordplay here. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, if uh, uh, if our audience uh, wants to text in a question, can they text that into you, Nick? Area code three one six twenty four sword. That's three one six two four seven nine six seven three. Text those questions in. Uh, we will answer those uh, live on the air, as it were, uh, during a podcast episode. We've already had a, a couple few come in, uh, and we've answered those. We look forward to many more of those coming in. Uh, you can also email those questions in, Alex. To swordplaypodcast at gmail.com, swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, be sure to share the podcast on social media and go in and write a review on Apple Podcasts. If you write a review, we will put you in a drawing for uh, free swordplay swagger. We'd like to send it your way so you can flex the new logo. Um, you have a great chance of uh, winning something right now. Only uh, one week left in the month, and you have a one in four chance. So there you go. Uh, also, we are... Streaming on most major platforms, Apple Podcast, as Alex mentioned. Also, we are in Spotify, Amazon Music, and Google Podcast as well. And if you can leave a review there, uh, do that also, and we'll we'll read those reviews on uh, on the podcast. And uh, I think you'll get entered for the the, the drawing for, in those respective places as well, right, Alex? That's right. So uh, you know, you give a shout out, we'll give a shout out back. Well. That's it for First John chapter two. Next week we'll dive into chapter three. I'm enjoying the First John. Uh, I hope you guys are as well. Thanks for hanging in there with us, diligent listener. Listener, this has been another uh, episode of Swordplay, your double-edged perspective on scripture. Yeah.